0: Welcome to BJJ Mental Models episode 206. I'm Steve Kwan. BJJ Mental Models is your guide to a conceptual and intelligent jiu-jitsu approach and today we're going to learn how to move because I'm happy to be joined by Dr. Rob Gray once again. How's it going Rob? Great Steve, thanks for inviting me man, congratulations. I got to say, I saw the book. I've picked up the book. I've started reading the book, I'm loving the book so far. Why don't you talk a little bit about yourself and this book that you've put out and what you've been working on since we last spoke?
1: Yeah. So I'm a professor at Arizona State University. I've been kind of researching skill acquisition and various domains, including sports for quite a long time now. And I do some, cons- a lot of consulting with, you know, various different sports. And so it's just over a year now, actually, it's been out I want to get a lot of people asking about kind of this new approach to to teaching skills. You know, sometimes you hear terms like ecological approach, ecological dynamics, constraints. To that approach, and I never had a, a great, great recommendation to point people to go first because a lot of it can be quite intense in terms of language, the terminology, and the theory. So I try to write this book to give people a place to start if they're interested and kind of explain some of the key ideas and logic and how the research seems to support this, and also show how it kind of fits into a bigger picture, you know, with not only just performance, but also related to injury, creativity, how you use technology. So that was what I was trying to achieve with the book. Yeah,
0: and I really love that because, I mean, as someone who is not trained in this area, but works in a you know, a very kinetic industry, I guess you'd call it, the jiu-jitsu industry, where skill acquisition and physical movement are so key. The thing, of course, that I find is it is very hard to get all of this academic knowledge into my brain. (laughs) I did ask a few people to kind of give me a a quick summary of what exactly the ecological approach is. And every time that happens, I just haven't yet found a a good, concise explanation for lay people until now, which is when I I picked up your Uh book. Very heavily recommended within our community a lot of people in the jiu-jitsu space are talking about your work. Actually, just on a recent episode that we did, we had a few people who specifically called you out and called out the Perception in Action yeah. podcast and wanted to give that a shout out. Oh, thank you. So uh, whether you know it or not, you've kind of become a, <laughs> a a resource here in the jiu-jitsu community, one of the the first recommendations for people wanting to dig into this stuff. And I think it's important to do so because within jiu-jitsu, I know that this is not a sport that you train, but we're just sort of discovering this approach right now and it's getting a lot of attention and i think for a lot of people when they're told hey you know you should practice the ecological approach the response that a lot of martial artists will come back with is what is that i'm not a biologist why do i need to know (laughs) ecology so I, i think there's a lot of misunderstanding about what this is and again your book how we learn to move is a great primer for that So maybe I'll turn this over to you. Why don't you explain exactly what this approach is and why it's so important and also how it's different from how people might be doing things just out of the gate right now?
1: Yeah, so there's a few different parts to it. Um, I guess, you know, starting with the name, the reason it's called the ecological approach is what we really emphasize is we want to train within context, within the environment. We don't want to pull an athlete outside the environment and train them and try to build up a technique and then try to put them back in. You kind of need to learn to adapt and move in context, right? So we don't, ideally, you know, there's some uses for it, but ideally we don't want to train someone in martial arts hitting a block or a heavy bag because how you punch depends on what your opponent's doing. So we always want a kind of opponent doing the ecology, your environment there, and so the the basic ideas of the approach, you know, the dominant concept I think is one of self-organization. The idea that there's not one correct ideal way to do do a sports skill, right? It depends on the individual. It, you have to adapt your skill to the different environments, right? Different positions of your opponent, when you get fatigued, right? So the idea that we can build up this one correct technique through repetition over and over again is kind of we're trying to move that away from that. So making an athlete have multiple techniques and be more adaptable. So that's kind of the the key concept, I think. Makes
0: a lot of sense. And I think that to most of the people listening, they'll probably understand and resonate with this. I mean, martial arts, as you mentioned, are notorious for drilling Mm -hmm. and repeating things in an environment that is very different from a, a live environment. To the point where in a lot of martial arts, there's a term for this, right? They call it a kata basically mm-hmm. where you do the the repetitive motion and mm-hmm. the idea is you do that you know ten thousand times and you're going to become a guru master black belt and that has been you know this approach of repetition has been ingrained in the martial arts for a long time and, and honestly kind of romanticized i think because of hollywood you know there's this expectation that if you're a martial artist you must just sit there and just do repetitive drilling over and over and over again but i think what you're saying is that the the science is implying that that isn't necessarily The best way to learn skill development, correct?
1: Yeah, correct. You know, it's it's you know there seems to be a better way. Yeah, I know you totally what you mean. Everyone has picture of image in their mind of Bruce Lee hitting the block this hundred times in a row. Um, Yeah. Yeah, no, I think most people that do do that approach. One of the first things they find is. When they train that way, then the athlete goes in to fight someone back against someone and they don't know when to do that move, right? They mm-hmm. don't know how to actually make a decision about when to put it, when to use that move. And they also don't know how to adjust it, you know, when the, your opponent's left-handed or they're taller or they're standing farther away. So instead of trying to build and spend so much, especially, you know, we have so limited practice time mm-hmm. to spend it all kind of building this up, isolated repetitive technique when you have someone you could be sparring against standing right there it seems like just not the best use of practice time
0: yeah absolutely and you know reading your book you talk a bit about the the history of the development of of this model and these understandings and you brought up some great examples of blacksmithing of all things mm-hmm. and i mean these are environments where really, you're not competing against anyone. You would think, Mm -hmm. like you said, that this is just a repetitive motion and you do it 10,000 times and you get good at it. But I clearly, that is not exactly true. And of course, in martial arts is even more different because not only are you trying to repeat things that you may have learned in training, but you also have this opponent, which is a variable. You've got someone there who is actively trying to prevent you from succeeding at what you're doing. So the frustration that I know a lot of martial artists have is they go into the martial arts thinking, man, if I just drill and repeat this technique a thousand times, I'm going to be an expert. But in reality, there's so many variables that can screw someone up right so many things Mm -hmm. that can happen what do you do if your opponent zags when you expected them to zig and i think that that is a great illustration of why repetition by itself is not enough to develop skill
1: yeah and i think in in traditional training like there's this huge gap there's like we train you train in two extremes well you know pure repetition isolated by yourself where you know your opponent is not even if there's an opponent they're not being anyway they're completely cooperative right they're they're letting you toss them to the ground or letting you know and then they have the other extreme a completely non-cooperative opponent that's trying to beat you and then seems to be nothing in between right we need to kind of develop the skill in things in between so yeah i think it's definitely it makes a sense to a lot of people when you describe it this way yeah.
0: so maybe a good place to start here is talking about ecology and and why we use that term i'd be curious to know what exactly that term means and and why that's been selected to describe this
1: yeah that really comes so ecological approaches you know or sometimes it's called ecological dynamics comes from you know uh, work by this researcher james gibson who, who did ecological psychology and then there's another one but yeah he basically wanted to emphasize the point that you can't understand or you know become good at movement unless you consider the environment, so the ecology of where it's happening, right? So, you know, whether a punch is effective, depend, it depends, it depends on what's going on around you. Like you said, you know, all the parameters of the situation. So we can't understand and we can't develop, you know, and the other key concept he had is one of information, right? The reason I punch low on you is because of how the information you're giving off to me, like you're leaving me an opening. So you need to be able to link your movements to the information from the environment of the ecology, right? So why I punch an uppercut for this reason I try to grab you by your your shoulders for that reason right the information is coming so you want to be able to connect your movements and and the, in the information so and that's only be you know can only get that by staying in the environment always staying in the ecology instead of the thing we always do in sports is we break things apart right and you you mentioned in martial arts in soccer we dribble around cones and baseball we hit off tees like we're pulling you out of your environment and so we really want to avoid that as much as possible in the ecological approach.
0: Got it. There's this, this great quote I heard one time, and it goes something along the lines of, a man can never cross the same river twice because mm-hmm. it's not going to be the same river and he's not going to be the same man, right? And mm-hmm. I think that's an interesting illustration of what you're talking about here, where by trying to pull a person out of the environment and just get them to learn a technique in a vacuum through repetitive motion, you're not letting them learn the technique the way it's actually going to be used. And you're not even really being realistic about what you're teaching because you're assuming that people can just do the same thing over and over and over again like computers but if i understand correctly what you're saying is that that's not really how it actually works when people develop skills right it's not just about mimicking and repeating what you've done in the past there's a lot more tiny decisions that have to be made on the fly and the end result is that no technique is ever done the same way twice right
1: yeah that that's the you know the core idea and the idea that you know the word we use is constraints right the things that are shaping how you move and the real, you know, strong idea in this is that they're always different, right? So you're actually, you're never, ever making the same movement ever, right? And, you know, if you take into account your, you know, your opponent, the, you know, the surface you're standing on, your internal condition, like you fatigue or maybe you strain the muscle, right? Everything, there's always going to be different combinations of these constraints. So you have to adapt to them. You have to, instead of pulling out the one correct movement, you need to be adapt your movement to be have it sensitive to the information from the environment and and be able to adapt. So it's really more the idea of, you know, executing a solution, right? The the traditional way we kind of coach is athlete comes to you and you give them the solution, right? Here's how you do this move. What we really want athletes to be is problem solvers. How do I find the solution that fits this problem I'm in? Because that's really what movement is, right? It's lots of problems you're faced with in these different constraints or conditions.
0: Yeah, and that's an interesting thing to bring up because, you know, like you implied, I guess the classical way of coaching is coach gives instructions and expects students to follow the instructions. And if the student cannot duplicate the coach's instructions to the letter, it's the student's fault. But I think Mm -hmm. what you're saying is that everybody learns things differently because everybody has different bodies, right? And everybody has different considerations and the environment is constantly changing. So you can't just cookie cutter these instructions into people's heads. You kind of have to give them some operating parameters, I guess, and sort of let them figure it out themselves for a solution that works for them, right?
1: Exactly. Yeah. The, the, my, One of my people I work with, Randy Sullivan, a baseball coach, calls it twit coaching. (laughs) Tell the athlete what to do, watch them do it, inform them what they did the wrong, tell them to do it again, (laughs) right? And if they can't do it, can't get it, then they're uncoachable and you, you send them away, right? But yeah, that's the central idea. You know, we want to give, we want to be a coach and a guide and a designer, right? Let's create an environment where you can find the best way to do it. I'm going to guide you too, right? If you, okay, maybe you're, Try this or, or, or put in something that gets you to try something in a different way rather than the idea of instructor. I know all the answers right from the start as a coach and you just come get them from me. Yeah. So it's a very different view of things. Yeah. And
0: what I find interesting about this model is that in a classical situation, I guess the expectation would be that the coach knows the technique perfectly and they teach it to the student and if the student does a good job they can duplicate it perfectly but what's interesting about this approach is it sounds kind of like you're saying the coach doesn't necessarily know the technique perfectly. What they're doing is they're guiding the students so that they can develop independently a solution that works for their own body, for their own environments. And, like you said, you're basically teaching them to be a problem solver rather than just trying
1: to teach them to copy the coach. Is that a correct understanding? For sure. Yeah, you know I've been working with some some martial arts instructors, you know, and One, you know, they were talking, you know, getting someone down to the ground. And, you know, the traditional way you teach it is you spend 45 minutes explaining, put your hand here, put your arm there, do pull this way, turn. You know, so you're giving them the solution and then you let them go try to put it into play. And um, what I, you know, suggest with coaches, I'm like, just try, just go to the athlete and say, get this person down to the ground any way you can right and just let them go and see what they do and then you can what you'll find is a lot of times the technique you're trying to get or something similar will just come out anyway but if it doesn't then you can start guiding and coaching instead of spending all this time trying to build up this perfect technique and never letting anyone use it um putting it into play i'd much rather you kind of get get into action and 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 see what comes out and the word we use is emerge right the solutions will emerge from the problems you give your athletes Yeah. Now
0: I know right now that a lot of pushback that people in the Mm -hmm. martial arts community will give, I can already see it in my head is Mm -hmm. they will say, Hey, I spent 15 years perfecting this technique. And you know, if I just let my students go and try and figure it out on their own, it's, it's never going to be as efficient as if I just give them the knowledge. And I'd love to hear the the science behind why that's actually not exactly true and why counterintuitively it's sometimes best to let students figure it out on their own.
1: Yeah, there's a few things, you know. One is, you know, first of all, that you start with we start with the premise I don't your solution that you came up with might not work for me. Right? I have a different individual constraints, I'm different height, different reach, different flexibility. So starting with the idea that you know the best thing for me is probably wrong. Mm-hmm. Even if you did though, it's really that's not the way movement works. You can't there's a lots of research showing that people really can't take on board very well instructions about bend your arm like this when this turn and then extend your arm there's a few problems there one is you get you know those things are happening way too fast and way too many things going on for you to be able to think through it like that what you're going to get is a very unfluent influent, jagged m- movement pattern right it's happening too fast you have to let your body kind of organize it itself so there's re- research showing people are really terrible at taking on The other thing is it it gets you really, there's this kind of great body of work on what's called the internal focus of attention, right? So internal focus of attention is when you're focusing on what your body is doing instead of an external one where you're focusing on the environment, what your opponent is doing or what your goal is. And there's tons of research over 25 years now showing that getting people to think about how straight their elbow is and where their feet are. Is it wrong? is bad for learning, right? You get some overthinking things which we don't want so so this idea, yeah, that you can give someone a technique, I think is really you know really not supported by the kind of recent research,
0: yeah. I had a Nick Winkleman on the podcast actually shortly after oh, okay. your episode, yeah, yeah, the author of the Language yeah. of Coaching, and mm-hmm. he talked a lot about this, and he gave some examples, particularly around how if you're training someone to run, for instance your intuition might tell you that you've got to sort of micromanage all of the details about, okay, put your elbow here, put your knee here, swing your arm like this, swing your leg like this. But what Nick said is you want to use language very similar to kind of what you're saying here, where you, you basically give them a problem to solve and let them solve it on themselves. So he would say things like, you know, run, like you're trying to, push your feet off the ground or run like a rattlesnake is chasing you and just kind of, you know, giving people Mm -hmm. just a high level idea and then letting them emergently figure out the correct motions from there, which it, it is a very counterintuitive process because you would think that, hey, when you go and you train with some black belt, who's been training forever, they would have all of this knowledge and they can just unlock that knowledge for you and give it to you. So it's counterintuitive to think about it, that actually it's maybe a lot simpler than that. And the coach's job is to, teach you how to learn to use your own body properly rather than trying to duplicate their success
1: yeah no no it's a good and running's an example i always like to use like think about most people how they learn to run how we did we have someone telling us what we're supposed to be doing with our knee and our foot and did we repeat set up cones and run between them on our driveway (laughs) no we just figured it out on our own right we just but some reason we changed we think we have to do every other kind of still differently. And, you know, I think there's an antidote I have in my book from James Rudd, who does work with kids and like physical education. And he was trying to get this girl to do, he was measuring kind of movement skills in kids. And he was trying to get this girl to do a gallop kind of move like a horse. Mm -hmm. And he was describing all the way to do it. And she could not do it, right? She could not get what he was saying, what he meant. And and then there was a re- break and a recess and the kids started playing and she was ch- they were playing tag and she was chasing another f- a friend of hers and they went down a hill. Immediately down the hill, she started galloping, right? Because mm-hmm. now the environment that has a purpose, right? It's not just someone telling you to do something. Galloping, keeps, that kind of movement keeps your balance when you're going down the hill. So that's the kind of idea. As a coach, can I create an environment that makes the, the kind of movement pattern I want emerge, That It's much more powerful, too, because then you think about it, if I'm just satisfying a coach, what they're telling me, does that really motivate me to keep doing that? Versus experiencing, wow, this actually helps me from falling down when I run down the hill. It's maybe our motivation to actually use that movement pattern in the long run. Got
0: it. So I would love to get some examples of this. I mean, if we were to look at really any sport, doesn't have to be the martial arts, but I'd love to know... How do you actually coach someone in this new way? Because this is an area where I've seen a lot of people get really hung up on is we'll say things in jujitsu like... Hey, we should stop trying to teach people these detailed techniques and asking them to copy them, and we should use this new approach. And for a lot of people, that's just a brain breaker. You know, you tell them I can't teach techniques anymore, and they think, well, then what do I teach? How do I do this? Yeah. You know, what what is my job as a coach? So I'd love to know if a coach is using the ecological approach, what does that look like? You know, what what does a, a class or a session look like with a coach like that?
1: Yeah. So there's kind of two fundamental categories I put them in the in the way we do it. One. On the constraints-led approach, and the other is differential learning. So, the constraints-led approach. So, what I would do, you know, the example I gave before of trying to get someone down to the ground, just let people try that, and then you observe as a coach, and you're like, okay, I don't like the way they're trying to grab the person's head, or you, 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 something you, you observe and you want to change. And the key to the constraints-led approach is, and the reason it's called this is, what you do next is think, what can I add to the this drill that will take away what they're doing now and get them to try to do something else, right? So you manipulate the constraints in the in the activity. So one thing you could do is have the opponent lean far back so I can't grab your head. So you can vary the rules of what the opponent's allowed to do. That's one constraint. You also, for different purposes, you can vary the size and the shape of the area you're fighting in. You could vary the starting positions. So instead of telling an athlete, Ben, you know, put your foot forward or do this, what can I add so that will encourage them to do that on their own, right? So you're not just, it's not just letting people spar and letting them do whatever they want and never jumping in. We still want to jump in as a coach because we know, we still know (laughs) what a good need to have to be an effective, do this technique. So that's one that way can, so think about what can I change about this so that, that will get them to explore something different. The other one, differential learning, is more letting people try the same thing but in different positions. So let's let's do this sparring. This time, I'm going to start. You start behind the opponent, or you start with your back to them, or you have to start with your feet. You're down on the ground. They're trying to flip you over. Start with your feet far apart. Start with your feet narrow. Right. So what we're trying to give is to give them to get them to explore kind of the solution space. What are the different ways I can do the movement, right? So, so that's what I, the way that I like to do, you know, an example, I I coach tennis, kids tennis sometimes. And instead of spending a 30 minute drill activity describing and telling them how to do a proper forehand, I just have them start playing rallying against another kid and then, not a very large part of the time, what I wanted will come out anyway, because they'll learn what they need to do to get the ball over the net and keep it in. They need to do kind of an arc stroke. If it doesn't, then I'll start thinking, okay, what can I add and what can I change? Instead of thinking, I always have to build things up, the fundamentals for the first place. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I think that's a, a coaching fallacy that a lot of coaches deal with is they, they forget sometimes what it's like to be a new person and they expect unfairly that the new person is just going to be able to listen to the instructions and then execute mm-hmm. the technique at black belt level every time. And it, that doesn't really take into account that people tend not to learn that way, right? You have to learn in building blocks. If, if you've never done something before, no matter how good your instructor describes it, you're not going to be able to duplicate it out of the gate. You've got to kind of piece it together yourself. So a big part of the process is building up from the ground up. And yeah, like you said, trying it yourself. And then the coach's job, really, rather than parroting instructions, it sounds like the coach's job is to use this constraints-led approach to kind of create like an invisible hand where you're you're basically, you're not telling the person what to do, but you're creating rules that kind of guide the person to figure out the right decision on their own. Is that a good explanation?
1: Yeah, for sure. You're, yeah, that's a good analogy. You know, I'm trying, I'm kind of guiding you. I'm not telling you you have to bend your knees, but maybe I'm putting a thing in there that encourages you to do that, right? And like I said, it's it's much more powerful for a way to do it. Yeah, yeah, I think, you know, this this idea that, you know, another one, I, a tool I really like to use is is demonstration without all the language, right? So just demonstrate a move and say, "You try that," without saying, "Okay, I put my hand here. I did this." People are very, very good at picking up things from the that they see and putting it into their own kind of language, right? Their own kind of movement, right? They're, we're good at copying and imitating, and if we if we just we don't want to have the me thinking about it, right? What you're doing by using too much description, yeah, yeah.
0: It's, it's it's interesting because in the martial arts sense, I mean, I remember when I was a white belt and I I started using I guess a, a twit based system with my old coaches as <laughs> you would describe it, and it was very much monkey see monkey do where they would give me instructions and I was expected to follow them, and I got quite frustrated because what I found was that never in a live sparring environment could I do things the way that they told me to do. Mm -hmm. It got to the point where after a degree of experience, I was able to do the move, but it never came out in the wash like my coach told me. You know, I would always have to skip Mm -hmm. steps or alter steps or add my own thing because if I did it the way I was taught exactly, it just never worked. Mm -hmm. And for the longest time, I thought that was a deficiency with me. I thought I was taking shortcuts (laughs) and that if I was doing it right, I should be able to just whip it off exactly like my coach tells me every single time. And I always assumed that the fact that I have to alter it a bit means that I'm doing something wrong, but it sounds like what you're saying is actually, that's just a natural part of development because I can tell you that even now at black belt, you know, I'm still not doing things the way that my coach taught me. I always have to make just adaptations on the fly because like you said, the environment changes, it's never the same and you can never assume Mm -hmm. it will be the same. There's just way too many variables, especially in a
1: dynamic sport. Yeah, for sure. No, you were being adaptable, you know, mm-hmm. which is exactly what we were, you know, we going for, you know, being able to change your movement pattern based on the, be sensitive to the information in the situation and be able to change your movement accordingly. I think, you know, that's really where skill is rather than having stored up all these techniques you can pull out off a shelf like they're a book. You know, I think it, it's more about coming up with it on the fly. Yeah.
0: Yeah, that's a really interesting observation that skill is more about adaptability than it is about just learning and repeating. And I, I think it's uh, probably quite contrary to what a, a lot of people think. I'd love to unpack this other thing that you talked about, differential learning. And Now, I know, of course, if, if someone wants to dig into the constraints-led approach, we talked about that quite extensively, actually, on the last time that you were on the podcast. That was mm-hmm. episode 144, if anyone wants to listen. So good resource there if you want to expand. But beyond that, Differential learning is something that I don't think we talked about until I started reading your latest book. I'd never heard the term before, so I'm guessing a lot of others are in the same space as I am, and I'd love to maybe hear exactly how that works and what that is and also why you would do it.
1: Yeah, so differential learning really builds off kind of a long history of research showing the benefits of variability of practice, right, varying the conditions. We, we tend to do things and vary, always do it the same way. Like I serve you the ball from the same spot, same speed. You hit it to the same location with the same racket, right? There's lots of research showing that if I start varying things in the the practice conditions, to me, I always call it the lowest hanging fruit, right? You will get immediate benefits if you start varying the the practice conditions and, you know, changing it up a little bit. Differential learning is kind of an extreme version of that, where what I want to try to do is get you to explore movement solutions over kind of a wide range of things. And the way that I do that is by getting you to solve the kind of the movement problem in very different situations, different constraints. So, and some of them. So the key thing is I'm not trying to get you to move. Like I want you to move in the competition. What I'm trying to do is get you to explore and learn about your body and how it moves, you know. So an example that, you know, I use, in, in I could tell, I'll say, do some martial arts for a second. But in golf, one of the things that I like to do is when I'm a golfer is having trouble hitting the ball straight, what I'll do is, okay, what I want you to do on this shot is hit it as far right as you possibly can. Try to hit the ball into that lake over there, okay, further right, and then I get them to hit the ball far left as possible, right? And get them to, to do the same. And what they're getting there is they're learning about the relationship between how I move and what happens to the ball, right? Not in a conscious way, but they're learning how do I make the ball go really right? How do I make the ball go really left? And then when it doesn't go straight, you can think, oh, okay, (laughs) now I know, you know, so that's the idea. So differential learning often involves putting people in really things you don't want them to do. So you might have someone in in a a combat situation, no sparring. Start on one foot, have one eye patched, (laughs) have really different. So it's really, I call it variability for variability's sake. We just want to get a whole bunch of randomness and conditions to get you to explore. That's the basic idea of differential learning. Fascinating. And and that's amazing
0: because that's actually sort of the opposite again of what a person might intuitively think. You know, you would think intuitively that if I want to learn something, I should just do that thing perfectly a hundred times. And if I can master the perfect form, then I'm an expert. But what you're you're saying here is that variability is actually the key to expertise because there is yeah. no such thing as perfect form. There's always randomness and variables. And the the key to real skill development is not doing it perfectly the same time every time. It's about being flexible and adaptable enough that you can always steer the movement back to where you want it to be, even if it looks different
1: than you might have originally expected. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's just kind of if you want to be consistent and, and successful, you need inconsistency and, and practice under kids of inconsistency. You know, one of the people I mentioned in the book, the book, the blacksmith, the person that did the work with the Blackstein Bernstein, his term was repetition without repetition. Right? I need to to repeat my outcome, hitting the same place. I need to not repeat my movement. I need to be able to do different things. And so, differential learning is kind of encouraging you to really explore what can I do and what what happens when I'm in this position. And the other thing I think it achieves, you know, one of the the real secrets of this is we're trying to get your your brain out of this, right? Your brain is trying to control a lot of times, especially when you're novice, control your movements. You're thinking about, okay, my instructor told me to stand with my back foot this way and my hand up. And Differential learning really puts you in these positions where you're, you know, I'm on one foot, okay, I don't know what to do. So your brain kind of like stops trying to control everything because you're in such weird positions. But yeah, that that's the basic idea of it.
0: Amazing. Yeah. I love that bit about how you you talked earlier about how it's a mistake to be too internally focused and obsessed about where does the Mm. arm go? Where does the leg go? And I've definitely had that problem myself where when training, I've been so focused on microanalyzing my own body movements that I I stop thinking about, okay, how am I going to actually beat this person I'm sparring with? Mm. Right. You get so focused on trying to do the thing perfectly that you actually forget, you know, doing the thing perfectly is not the goal. This is a combat sport. Winning is the goal, right? It's possible to get too caught up in your own head sometimes. I've I've mentioned on the podcast, a good example is I used to be really obsessive about trying to do what what in jujitsu was called a a guard break and a guard pass. Basically that what that means in layman's terms is when the other person's on the ground, I want to try to get past their legs because their legs are weapons, right? Mm -hmm. And I used to be very, very concerned about, okay, how do I do the perfect move? from here to make sure that this person can't control me and I can I can do what I want and it just never worked and after years I got frustrated and one day I just said you know what screw it I'm just going to make a decision that today I'm just not going to let this person grab me. That's the only thing I care about. I don't care about any techniques or any individual movements. My goal is every time this person grabs me, I'm going to do something about it so they can't grab me. And Mm -hmm. I found that when I reframed my thinking that way, I got like twice as good overnight. (laughs) It was Mm -hmm. very surprising to me because I'd abandoned everything all my teachers had ever told me and just kind of winged it. And I never would have thought that that actually would have resulted in better performance but it did almost overnight to the point where people commented on it so i found that very odd
1: yeah, no, it's a, you know, focusing on what you actually want to achieve. There's this idea that we have to focus on the actual movement rather than what we're trying to achieve, our goal, right? You know, I, the tennis example, you know, my, my son, the, he was practicing in a very traditional learn the forehand way, and then he wanted to play in like a tournament. And he really struggled because he was hitting perfect forehands right at this opponent. He had not learned in any way how to actually win a point right <laughs> yeah. he learned he did instead of getting his planet to move around and playing it deep and short and into open spaces he just knew how to do the swing rather than play tennis right and we have that attitude in a lot of times we focus so much on the movement when we should focus on the outcome of the move that's what matters who cares how you move if you get the outcome you want yeah 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 that's that's amazing and now to expand on kind of a broader
0: idea, you mentioned at the beginning of this, and, and this is very much in line with everything you said here, you talked about self-organization, um, and I love that you bring that up because I, I work in tech, and we talk about this all the time when it comes to team dynamics, but I'd love to hear your explanation of this. What do we mean when we talk about self-organization and why that's good for coaching?
1: Yeah, so the basic idea of it is, you know, you kind of give your your body an overall goal, <laughs> your brain. And it sorts out the details for you, right? So self-organization is your body adjusts the specifics of the elbow angle, the knee angle, the amount of rotation, the amount of force. In in much of the, the, the example we always cite is a flock of birds, right? A flock of birds does not have a leader telling them where to go. They organize themselves, right? They turn left, they turn right because they're just, the body parts are working together, Right so that that's a fundamental idea. We can't tell our body what all the parts are being should be doing at every moment. There's too many parts and it's happening too fast. If you just focus on the outcome like you said and focus externally, your body self-organizes it figures out all those details on its own and in this kind of amazing way. Sometimes it will figure out things in a way that's not the best, right? Or it could be injury causing. That's when we want to step in as a coach. So it's not, I'm not saying, we're not saying that there's always this miracle, perfect form and great technique when you let someone self-organize. Sometimes it doesn't, it's not effective. And that's when the coach has to kind of guide things with that, that invisible hand we mentioned.
0: Yeah, if I understand correctly, that's kind of the point at which the coach gets involved, right? And that's the reason why they employ these constraints is because if you do leave a person literally to completely their own devices, I mean, yes, they they may eventually be able to reverse engineer the whole sport, but it's going to take a long time. So the idea is the coach is there to put those rail guards in place to make sure that that person you know, yeah, they might struggle here and there. And I'm going to guess that in a lot of cases, they're not going to do things perfectly the first time, mm-hmm. but that's okay. Because the goal is not to be perfect the first time. The goal is, through practice and exploration and experimentation and self-direction, this person refines and refines and refines and gets to the point you want them to be. And so the coach's job then is to basically put those guardrails in place so that when the person is training, they wind up in that spot, right? I guess that's a good way to think about it.
1: Yeah, I know. And that's a good point. Um, you know, the, one of the things you kind of have to accept in this approach is you're playing the long game right? You'll actually, you know, not only is it struggle, but if you tell an athlete everything to do, they will look better in the short term. You'll get faster results in quotes because they'll look like they're being more proficient at it. Whereas if you let them explore and you don't give them all this instructions that takes longer (laughs) to the kind of, you know, struggling and trying all these different things. But there's tons of research showing that in the long run, you know the the group that is allowed to explore and to be adaptable will will be have would tain it better. They'll be able to transfer better to other conditions, things like that. So yeah, you do have to kind of recognize that. So as a coach, you want to you know first of all, you should ask why do I want to change what they're doing? Is there a real reason? Is it just because it doesn't look like I think it's supposed to? Then maybe not. But if there's a reason, you know, I, I'm trying to think of a good you know if if someone comes up with a technique where they're keeping their hands really low and not protecting themselves, right? And maybe as a coach, you wanna, okay, I gotta, that's how they self-organized. Maybe I need to add a constraint to get them, (laughs) their hands up and more in in defensive position as well. Things like that. So if you have a good functional reason or an injury potential, you can see something that might cause injury. That's when we wanna step in and try to guide things a little. Got it. So
0: uh, an old school twit coach, I guess, they would come in Mm -hmm. and they would prescribe the motions and tell people, copy them. But a, mm-hmm. a new school ecological coach, I suppose, would come in and create some constraints to try to guide behavior and then monitor what their students are doing and see, okay, if the students are making repeated mistakes and they're kind of going in the wrong direction, you alter the constraints to point them back in the direction that you want to go. Does that sound like the plan?
1: Yeah, exactly. And that that's another like really important point I've kind of, with some of the people I'm working with now, we've kind of realized, made them realize, you know, often we where we coach we come with a set plan. Okay. We're going to work on this activity, right? This with technique, we've planned it out beforehand and we're not even, you know, we're not for just because it looks like it should be on the schedule. Now. Um, what I've tried to get coaches to do more is like, let people spar a bit or do something a bit and see what they're struggling with. then, coach that right (laughs) instead of coming in with a pre-planned agenda maybe people are having trouble with blocking or there's getting they're moving too far away you know so being more also it's kind of a more adaptable coaching you know i'm gonna adjust based on how people respond and how what people are doing rather than coming in with this pre-planned agenda about this technique perfect technique and how we're gonna what we're gonna do each day Got it. From the coach's perspective, how do you find that
0: coaches tend to respond to this? Do they do they feel that this ecological approach is more work or is it actually less work in the long run than the the twit approach, I suppose?
1: It's kind of it's a struggle for a lot of coaches to kind of it's loses some of the safety of, of the security of the blanket of the technical drills. Are, I think are I think those are easier in a lot of ways, right? We we've done those a lot of times. We know what to say. You know constraints the coaching it, most people say you know it's difficult in in how you adjust it, and you know what do I do if this constraint I added doesn't work? It doesn't get the behavior I'm looking for. So learning how to do that and how to adjust the constraints and adapt them is quite difficult and knowing when to step in and on it so it's not it's not just hands off hands free coaching you know I, but I you know at the same time I've gotten so many positive feedback not only from seeing the outcomes, but almost everybody that does this just tells me that there's an immediate change in the environment, practice environment when they make this switch. The kit there's more noise, people <laughs> are you talking more. Like it's more I think Bruce Lee coined this term. You make practice alive. Right? It suddenly becomes more alive when you coach this way. Instead of everybody quiet, standing in lines waiting to do repeating the same thing you get you know this kind of excitement and buzz in the gym
0: this is a, a common thing that jujitsu instructors that are, are using this method have reported i've i've heard people say mm. that one of the benefits to this approach is it makes training more fun for people which is always mm-hmm. a concern for a coach because like look if, if you're talking about coaching a martial art you're generally talking about people who are paying to be there on their own time for fun. So if it's not fun, that's going to impact your retention, right? Which is going to impact your bottom line. And so it's always better if your your students are enjoying the practice. And one of the the measures that I know a lot of coaches use when they create an ecological system here is they can kind of gamify the whole thing. Uh, rather than expecting people to repeat things specifically, they kind of structure their class in a series of games that people can play. And those those yeah. games, the rules of the games are basically the constraints you talked about so exactly that's, that's kind of the way they mm-hmm. think about putting that
1: class together yeah no i think it's great and it, it for me it's like it's how you get that kind of in between you know purely technique and the actual full fighting like you can't do full fighting all, obviously all the time and so constraining what the opponent can do or what each person can do is a way that you can kind of get get that in between yeah yeah no i think that's getting that game, you're right, gamifying is another word that I like to, you know, if you're insisting on doing this drill, how can we make it more actually like competition? That's what I try to do with coaches that kind of struggling with adopting this.
0: Yeah, so that's an interesting consideration though, which is you're trying to create these constraints so that people are going to develop skills that are realistic. So you mm-hmm. don't have them, you know, doing katas against the wall for hours and hours a day. You're trying to give them exposure to what a, a real training situation would look like the problem though of course in the martial arts is if you take this to the logical extreme right you, i mean you don't want your people beating the crap out of each other in class mm-hmm. right yeah so i guess that's where the constraints come into play it's not just about skill development but it's to also set up the safety zone so that people don't do anything
1: tremendously stupid <laughs> exactly and that's a word you know a lot of people struggle with the word why do we call it constraints right why Why would constraining help you get better? It sounds like a very restrictive, like I'm putting you in shackles, but... The idea is that, you know, there's so many different ways I can move. If you just ask me to hit you, (laughs) there's an infinite number of ways I could do that. Like So deciding how to do it and when when, in a way that's not going to hurt somebody, you know, it's a problem. It's what Bernstein called the degrees of freedom problem. There's too many options. And so constraints are essentially taking away some of those on purpose, right, to make it easier or safer. So we're constraining the possible ways you can move to actually help facilitate learning and and, and make sure things are safe. Yeah. So definitely that fits.
0: I love that bit about the degrees of freedom problem. And I'd love to unpack that too, because I've heard that before, but what's the backstory here? Mm. What exactly does that imply?
1: So the idea is, you know, when we, when we're going to move, like even something simple, like, like throwing, right. Throwing a ball. There's so many different degrees of freedom is basically, I think of it as options, right? So I could throw a ball just by all wrist, like snapping my wrist or I can throw it by a combination of wrist and elbow motion or wrist, shoulder and elbow motion. Each of those joints can move in different ways and different amounts, right? So the degrees of freedom problem is how do I know what to do? Like, what should I do with my elbow when I'm learning to throw a ball? Should I keep it straight? Should I bend at 90 degrees? Should I rotate? Like all these options. And yeah, Bernstein called this the degrees of freedom problem, trying to find which what should I do? and often what you see people do as a solution to this is what Bernstein called freezing, freezing degrees of freedom is taking some of those degrees of freedom out of the equation by not moving them. Right. And this is what you see, you know, a lot of the, my two favorite examples are like skiing, downhill skiing and dancing. Right. When first people start first doing those, they don't know what to do with their arms really. (laughs) Right. So they just move their arm, upper body kind of in sync with their lower body and sway back and forth That, that. So Freezing degrees of freedom is a way to kind of solve this problem of too many options. Human beings are not good with having lots of options for things. (laughs) We need to kind of get them, some of them taken away. And the traditional way we do it is take away all the options by telling you exactly how to move. Right? Do this way. You bend your elbow this amount. Whereas constraints is just taking away some of them so you can kind of explore. God, that makes a a ton of sense. Now,
0: something you had brought up earlier, you talked, and this is very counterintuitive, but you talked about how using approaches like this can actually reduce injury. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure that perks up a lot of ears for martial artists. I mean, we're all a bunch of injured old people. And so we're always all concerned about how to prevent that. (laughs) But the thing that a lot of experienced coaches will say is they're kind of terrified of leaving their junior students unsupervised because if they don't know how to, you know, do the technique properly, they might accidentally break their arm or the other person's arm. And so the concern Mm -hmm. that often comes up is, okay, we got to really monitor these people, especially at the junior ranks, because they just don't know how to train safely. So counterintuitive that this could lead to injury prevention. And I, I would definitely want to hear about how that works.
1: Yeah, so it's not so much, you know, kind of the the type of injuries you're talking about, where someone just kind of does a, a technique that <laughs> that can can hurt someone. That's a year, right? We've got to be. You do have to kind of concern with that and have those constraints in place. It's more about kind of repetitive strain injuries, right? So hitting the same bag spot over and over again to learn how to punch. You know, if we actually move the same way every time, we're putting the same strain on the body all the time the same joints, the same muscles, right? Versus if I let you move slightly differently, I come, you come to the bag from a slightly different angle, you you extend your shoulder more and you rotate your shoulder less, you know, you're going to have less of that strain. So variability, being able to move and do the same thing in slightly different ways seems to be kind of be a protective mechanism, right? One of the things we see in people like in running people that have knee pain and things like that and running, often one of the signatures you see is their stride is more consistent. (laughs) Actually, it's the same all the time, right? They're not having that kind of beneficial, slightly different movements uh, all the time. So, yeah, there's kind of a really interesting body of research showing that, you know, when we train to promote with differential learning and constraints to export exploration, people's kind of the, even like the markers for knee injuries, people have less extreme angles. They have less forces because they've learned to do this same movement in a few different ways. That's kind of the idea.
0: Yeah. There's this amazing part of your book where you talk about how, you know, variability in, in the human body is a, is a feature. It's not a bug, right? And that actually yes. too much consistency can be a very bad thing. If everything is the same every single time, it's actually bad for your body in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, yeah. There's lots of examples I give in the book. Like, you know, heart rate variability. You know, most people would assume your heart kind of beats like a metronome. Like it's the same. The time between the beats is the same every time. Actually, that's a sign of severe health problem. <laughs> it's exactly the opposite. You want kind of variability, you know, variability in your genes to be able to deal with if you have an infection, it can use something else, right? Um, Variability allows for this other, here's another term, redundancy, right? if i have variability then i can use if you know i my elbow is strained or there's some reason i can't extend my arm i have a different way to solve that problem it just makes us more adaptable and resilient and things like that
0: Yeah. You know, that reminds me of actually of my day job. I mean, this comes up a lot in software. I think people sometimes, you know, they fail to understand why computers can be so fragile and you, you know, you try to go to Mm -hmm. you load up a piece of software one day and it just doesn't work because, you know, you put in a semicolon instead of a a colon or something like that. Mm -hmm. And the reason why is because computers are generally not good at variability, right? They're very fast, very powerful calculators, but they're not good at adapting to things that are unexpected unless a human being has specifically gone in and coded in for those unexpected things. In which case, I guess they are not really that unexpected. But the thing you brought up in your book that was fascinating was about how all of this variability in humans gives us a degree of redundancy. So we have other Mm -hmm. ways of doing things. If plan A doesn't work, our bodies can switch over to plan B. And that kind of redundancy is what makes us super adaptable. And that's kind of one of our, our strengths, I suppose, as a species.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's a good analogy. Like a computer is just going to plug whatever you give it. It's going (laughs) to follow these steps and logical steps, which is what you want, right? But you can, you know, do neural networks and machine learning where the computer is actually figuring out things on its own in a way too. So yeah. Yeah, for sure. It's just not, there's too many kind of, in our body, the other problem is like, there's too many unpredictable interactions between things. I always say, you know, Coaching is, you know, like if you anyone in listening, if you have kids, right, raising kids is totally unpredictable in a lot of ways, because things that work for one kid don't work for another, they don't, when they're different, you have a sibling now, and you know, so it's this kind of unpredictability that's involved in the system, whereas a computer, for the most part, is fairly predictable, right? You know, if I do this, that will happen. It's not the same with us at all. Yep, yep. Well, here's a question for you then. Does
0: this approach change depending on the experience level of your students? Would you do the same thing for someone who, for example, is trying a sport for the first time ever? Would you do that differently from someone who maybe has been doing this for 10 years or does the exact same approach always apply?
1: Yeah, no, that, that's a great question. Great question, yeah. So this is where we get into the kind of key concept of challenge, right? So one of the things we always try to stress, right, is to learn, right, you need to be challenged at the right level. And we need to be critically. You need to be making some mistakes, right? Doing things wrong. If you're doing everything perfectly, you're performing, not learning, right? You're not going to get any better. If I'm fighting against someone that I can easily hit every time because they're not as skilled, then I'm not going to get any better, right? Fighting against. I'm going to get better when I fight against someone that's you know more skilled and eventually blocks some of my punches or gets them on in on me. So. So the, the the rule that we kind of use, I like to use, and a lot of people do, is, and it's by, kind of backed by a lot of research, it's kind of the 70% rule. So we want kind of 7 out of 10 success rate. It's kind of enough to keep you motivated and confident, but enough mistakes so you're learning. So when you're with a newer person, yeah, it's, you want to – some of the things you want to do, like scale back that variability. So I don't want to throw a ton of different variants and conditions and things at a new learner – right? It's a bit too much for them to handle. They're already kind of variable on their own. So we want to kind of scale it up as they improve and keep kind of that 70% target versus when I'm with a really experienced person, like I can add a lot more and I can really also focus it on, right? Maybe I have a really skilled person that's not very good with their left hand, right? Now I can kind of focus the variability and conditions around that, right? So I'm, I can see what kind of the area they need to improve, to kind of get better rather than just getting the overall movement down so yeah you do have to kind of vary the use this method differently depending on the skill level and the age of your people you're teaching
0: i see i love that 70 yeah. percent rule i mean i've heard similar things before and that definitely jives with you know my personal experience as well which is if you if you have people failing too often you know if they're failing 90 95 percent of the time they get demoralized and also they just kind of get overloaded, right? There's too much happening yeah. that they're not really able to pull out any lessons or, or work within that and improve. But if you go below that, then people get comfortable and they get bored and they kind of fall into a routine. So I love that idea of, you know, targeting 70%. So I, I guess the idea is you want to structure the the lesson such that students succeed 70% of the time roughly and fail maybe the other 30% of the
1: time and just, yeah, yeah. Got it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that and that brings up another, you know, the what I'm doing has to have some sort of consequence and goal, right? It would be hard to implement a 70% rule if you're hitting against a bag, right? Because <laughs> what does successful mean, right? It, well, I guess you mean successful because you're doing the correct technique that I want. But that's not the kind of success we're talking about, right? It's in achieving the goal of, you know, actually hitting the target or blocking or, or whatever we want to do.
0: Right, right. One more thing I'd love to dig into here, and this is maybe a unique thing about our martial art and our sport. There's a lot of hobbyists who do jujitsu and martial arts like this, right? People who are not necessarily high school athletes who are under a coaching program and they're looking to go in and place in tournaments. But there's a lot of people who do this for lifestyle reasons, for fun and i'd be curious to know if you have different tactics or strategies that you would use to coach when you're dealing with someone who's a you know a serious competitor and they're there to win and they're they're able to devote a significant amount of time to training versus the you know the weekend warrior who only is is training for a few hours a week and is mostly there for fun i'd be curious to know if there's a different approach that needs to be taken with people like that
1: Yeah, that's that's a good question. I think in in general, no, I would use kind of the same approach, I guess, with a hobbyist, maybe focus more kind of just on general things, just kind of getting the general proficiency and coordination down rather than doing like things like like I was mentioning, like working on your left hand, right? Maybe if they're not going to be in competition, they don't need to worry about that. I actually find in some of the sports I work in, this kind of group is actually difficult to work with in a lot of ways. You know, like I said, I coach tennis sometimes. You get the same kind of thing with people. They come up and they want the hacks. They want to know, okay, tell me exactly what I need to do yeah. <laughs> to do this. And I tell them, you need to practice doing that. <laughs> and the, but they don't want to hear that because they only have so much time to devote this. They want the kind of shortcut and the quick shortcut. But no, in, in general, I think we'd want the same. I think they'll have more fun, and in, in, in especially if – you know, they don't have as much time a kind of a hobbyist to get, get right to the actual action for sure. Fantastic.
0: Well, before we tie this up, Rob, any, any closing thoughts or things that you think are, are merit discussion that we didn't have a chance to get into?
1: Yeah, I think this is, you know, I think this is a really interesting area. It's, it's starting to go into martial arts. Like, you know, as we said before, it's really <laughs> different than the way traditional martial arts is start. You know, I'm starting to see, I was just, I just saw an article for, for example, the study where they're explaining they had police recruits and they were training them to defend knife attacks right and mm-hmm. they did uh, the traditional kind of instructive approach versus constraints that approach and they found the constraints in the end was better particularly when the attacks were really unpredictable mm-hmm. you know and that's where you expect this kind of approach to shine right we're getting you really in in these kind of situations so i'm really excited to see it go in this way uh, into the to kind of martial arts and You know, it has its own unique things we have to deal with, like the potential for injury is way different than in other sports. So I'm interested to see how people are using it and adapting it for that purpose.
0: Yeah. And hey, if anyone out there is uh, using the stuff in the gym, let me know. I mean, write in and tell me because I'd love to hear your story. We've had a few guests on the podcast who have um, moved to an ecological approach to coaching at their gym, and I think that's just going to be growing and expanding. So yeah, definitely want to get the community's feedback on this and know if anyone has had success applying this in their gym. But Rob, thank you so much for coming by. Before we let you go, if people want to check out your book, your podcast, or any other work you've done, how do they go about finding it?
1: Yeah, so I my general you can go to just my website, perceptionaction.com. It has a kind of everything there. You know, my book is how we learn to move. It's on Amazon. My podcast is called the Perception Action Podcast, all about skill acquisition in sports from the an ecological approach. The episodes, the newest episodes are very deep in the weeds and kind mm-hmm. of get in detail. So if you just want to get in, there's some older ones, like there's an introduction to differential learning and strength set approach. I um, also have a YouTube channel. You can look there. We have some of the episodes I have kind of roundtable discussions with people, and we do have one on using an ecological approach for martial arts. That's fantastic that you might might want to check out.
0: Awesome. So as is always the case, I will put those links in the show notes. So if anyone is interested, easy one-stop shop, just pop open the podcast player go to wherever the description is and there should be links you can just tap and click there so i'll link off to all of those and yeah like i said i mean as someone who's just dipping into the stuff if you don't know where to start which is very relatable mm-hmm. rob's latest book how we learn to move great primer on all of the stuff it's it's not particularly long and lengthy which is always one of the things that i look for right because uh, <laughs> keeping it succinct for martial artists is usually a good thing right mm-hmm. trying to throw us into the science pit usually doesn't go too well but i definitely recommend that book i'm, I'm part way through it i know I got it on Audible, and so I'm I'm very used to okay. hearing your voice, Rob, between the podcast.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're not sick of it. Yeah, somehow you narrating your own book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's something I had to get over. Listening to my own voice it was a it was a challenge.
0: I I will never <laughs> yeah. get used to it awesome well on that note if anyone wants more from us i would highly recommend you check out bjj mental models premium that's our coaching service there's a lot of stuff on there we've got a lot of long form courses that we put on there around mindset strategy tactics concepts the main difference between what we do versus what a lot of others do is i think as everyone knows we're we're all audio not it's not a video instructional library and we're focused on ideas strategy mindset that kind of thing there's a lot of coaches on there far smarter than me providing that feedback so definitely recommend checking all that out and in addition to the courses the other thing that you get is access to our amazing coaching service and our amazing community so yeah if you're a member you can send us your rolling footage we'll have very very good high level black belt grapplers break that stuff down and give you feedback Uh, what i always hear is it's a totally game-changing experience for people so i definitely recommend especially given that there's a trial definitely recommend signing up sending us some of your footage and just seeing what you think if you don't like it again you can always cancel during the trial period all of that's available at bjjmentalmodels.com and that's also how we support the show so please do consider it again one more time that's bjjmentalmodels.com but Rob, thank you again for coming back. Always love these conversations, man. I learned so much talking to you. And I i know a lot of people are on board with your system. And I think that's just going to continue to expand in our, in our community here. So you've always got a slot here if you ever want to come back. But thanks again for coming by and sharing all of this with us.
1: My pleasure, Steve. Thank you.
0: Thank you, too. And of course, to everyone listening, thank you as well. Truly appreciate the time that you give us every week. We'll talk to you next time. Take care.